the best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. Number four. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and we're going to do something special. Uh, my friend, Dr. Ray Grendy, is with me. Ray has been practicing psychologist for over four decades now. Uh, you know him best, of course, as the host of The Doctor Is In and also on television, Living Right with Dr. Ray. He's father of 10 and, as I said, a clinical psychologist for a long time, public speaker, a nationally syndicated TV and radio host. Uh, Ray has seen a lot of clinical depression over the years. And as I've mentioned a few times, uh, I was hospitalized for depression twice back 1982-1983, and in fact didn't really emerge from that whole experience until May of 1985. We'll talk a little bit about that. I thought it might be good. Ray and I have talked off the air about this before. We thought the experience, I've got enough distance on it now where a lot of it, there's some amusement to it. In other parts, I'm glad that uh, somebody threw out a life, uh, you know, uh, life support for me. So let, let me. Good to see you, by the way. Hi, Al. <laughs> Let's let me let me just start. Give you a little bit of background, okay? So it's January of 1981, and I just had an opportunity to speak at a major evangelical conference. Uh, I worked worked my tail off on it. At the same time, we were going through a corporate identity change on the stores. We had a chain of ten Christian bookstores. And we were moving them from, you know, one name to another name with all the changes that go on with that. We were re- redesigning all the insides and the books and all the, the, the bookshelves and the furnitures and fixtures and all that. And, um, and I was also a little, actually a little bummed out at the state of evangelical Christianity. That was a major, that, for me, that was my life at the time. Uh, I had to go up to Toronto for uh, hernia surgery. My dad told me about a place, Shouldice Hospital there, where they could take in, do the surgery, didn't even, wouldn't even put you under general anesthetic. They'd um, do it with local, um, uh, local anesthesia, and then uh, you'd be up and on your feet in a you know, day, two days. So I thought, this is great. I don't have to take six weeks off of work. So I went up to the hospital. Um, on the hospital uh, table as the doctor was um, doing his work, I had what felt like a huge shot of adrenaline, and then flashbacks, emotional flashbacks, not necessarily, and some visual flashbacks to uh, LSD experiences I had had when I was seventeen. So you're you're looking a long time before, fifteen years probably. Um, I, I completely baffled by the whole thing. And I actually mentioned, uh, these were, these, back then, they were death trips, so I thought I was dying. So I said to the doctor, I said, you know, am I losing a lot of blood? And they're, they're carrying, I'm trying to carry on conversation <laughs> with me, and they're urging me to relax, Mr. Cresta. So it gets towards the end of this, and I'm conscious the whole time. Mm-hmm. It gets to the end of the surgery, the, the experience subsides, and I, I get up, uh, and I say, to, uh, get, get me to a wheelchair, and I say to the, I told the doctor what happened to me it, interiorly. And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders. I wanted to know if this was kind of common. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> so Sally and I left uh, Toronto uh, and went 
back to, at that time, the Detroit area. And, you know, I got back to work. Things seemed fine. The surgery was incredible. I was back on my feet in two days. One night, uh, maybe 10 days later, uh, Sal was asleep. I was up. I was beginning to do a work. I wanted to write a book on apologetics. And so I was reading some atheist literature, uh, one book in particular called The Illusion of Immortality by, uh, I've forgotten his name now. I'll remember it later. He's dead. He is probably dead. (laughs) And now he knows what was an illusion and what wasn't. Um, But for some reason or other, all the things he was presenting were things I had seen and heard before. But for some reason or other, I was hit with, again, a kind of a shot of adrenaline. And all of a sudden, the horror of an atheistic universe appeared to me. You know, my first response was to throw myself on the floor and start praying, which I did, and it didn't subside. It continued on. Well, to make a long story short, I was had panic attacks for days. In fact, there was one time when I went four days straight without sleep. So it was intense. We went... And this goes on for six months, not quite the same intensity, but I go to deliverance ministry. I uh, went to a talk therapist, uh, a young woman just put out her shingle, not very nice, good that she was there. Um, didn't get a whole lot of insight, but so this goes, goes on. So I'm in August, we get to August, and not getting better, um, go to, there's a psychiatrist that we met, an uh, older woman who said to me, you know, I, I told her, nobody's taking the questions I'm bringing up seriously. They, always, they think something else is going on in my life. And she said, well, that, she said, that's a big mistake because the questions you're asking are who you are. <laughs> this is, those are the questions you ask. Not everybody asks those questions, but that's you. So she recommended I go to a, a hospital. It was a Christian hospital in Michigan. So I went there for six weeks. Not much help. Um, they did reckon, finally they found a, a tricyclic antidepressant, Elevil, mm-hmm. which well, got my head above water. One of the older ones. Yes, yeah, one of the older ones. And, and also has extraordinary effect on your appetite. I gained over the next year, I think I gained 60 pounds, 70 pounds. Ooh. I had dropped, I had dropped, I should have said this, Ooh. I had dropped from about 175 pounds down to nearly 120 Yeah, during that period. And then once I started using the Elevil. You were on a depressive roll. Yeah. So it gives you some idea of what I was facing. The experiences at the hospital, some, we'll talk about that, but they're funny. I mean, some of them are just hilarious. They were actually funny then even. But uh, So just jump okay. in. All right. Jump in. You have what shrinks call a precipitating event. Mm-hmm. You had this very perplexing, very scary panic attack. Panic attacks throw people for loops. Am I losing my mind? Am I crazy? Is this the way my life's going to be? Am I having a heart attack? I better get to an emergency room. What is wrong with me? She had a panic attack. And who knows the degree that that surge of adrenaline threw neurologically into uh, a few flashbacks. You know, those things are still wired up there. And here we go. Yeah. But you had an existential crisis. Now, I'm listening to you describe this, and I'm thinking, if a guy like you came to me, the first thing I would do is I'd explore how important your faith was to you, and then to have that faith shattered. You read the book on atheism, and you said to yourself, I knew all this stuff. Why is it affecting me now? Because 
There must have been something in the way this guy was saying this, the, the persuasiveness, or probably perhaps he was so convinced that this is true. So your whole world, everything that you founded yourself on yeah. was shaken. Yeah. Now, you went into the hospital. One of the first things that happens is that they view this as an illness. In fact, hold, let me okay. just stop you there Go for ahead. a minute. And what you said actually brings back to mind what it was about what I read. It wasn't the content of what he said, but it was that I, I thought he was sincere. I thought he really did believe what he was saying, where previously I'd always thought that <laughs> an atheist was an atheist because they were trying, they were unwilling to live a moral life, or they were suppressing something, and that's why they were atheists. And I read this guy, I said, he doesn't sound that way to me. He sounds like he actually believes this. And he, So my, my defense against atheism, that atheists Collapsed. themselves, that's right. So that actually did happen there. And something in the way he expressed himself was, pers- he seemed to have character, which I had not attributed to atheists before. He was genuine. Yeah. The medical model of depression, and you see it even in advertisements on TV, depression is an illness. Well, not really. Most depressions are not neurochemically based. If you've seen a neurochemical based depression, man, that's serious stuff. Right. Okay. Most depressions are a combination of circumstances, the way you interpret the circumstances, the role that you get on. You got on a role. And what you did was not only did you have this existential you had a great what's it all about Alfie moment right. that threw you for a loop. Then you throw in the panic attacks. Right. Now I'm losing my mind. Right. Now I can't function. Then you stopped eating. Yep. You started sleeping bad. If you want to screw up your head, don't sleep. Okay? <laughs> That's so true. That's going to happen. Yeah. There's no question about that. I don't doubt you went into that hospital and I just from what you told me before, I don't suspect anybody said... This was a formerly religious guy who shook up. Did they even probe that? Um, astounding n- n- no. It, it, <laughs> it, it was nobody. This is one of the things that was so baffling to me. Nobody seemed to get that these questions were undermining my whole sense what, of self. Your life. Um, Sal, my you know, Sal. Thankfully, Sal was patient and with me through all of this. And and when she, I can remember, we're sitting in front of one therapist, and the therapist says to her, "So, what what do you think would happen if uh, Al never uh, recovered his faith?" And she said, "Well, he wouldn't be Al. I I can't. I have no idea who he would be." <laughs> so. It was Your wife had more clinical savvy than the therapists. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Part of it is the mindset in secular therapy. We don't give enough we don't give enough leverage, weight to people's deepest held beliefs. Right. Yep. We just assume, okay, well, Al is gonna fit into this mold of depression. This is Probably he's got some image problems. Maybe there's some struggle with with who he is. And so we're probing that. You're in the hospital for six weeks. They gave you a medicine. And you want to know the dirty little secret to antidepressive medicine, Al? Yeah. They've done meta-analyses of studies. And what they found was over and above the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. Do you know how many people out of 10 medicine benefits? No. 
But one or two. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. because we they tried multiple. It, it, it wasn't they had the tr- they were experimenting they to figure out what might get any kind of therapeutic effect. And and you they they released you, but you still were no better. Well, at all they couldn't keep you for six weeks. That's a, that's that's a long time. Yeah, the the um no I I, I like I said I, my I got my nose above water, so I wasn't. Uh, you were in crisis, right? The crisis had passed. I was still so demotivated that uh, I'm I was blessed because my uh, the fellow I was working for was a committed Christian too, and he actually was sympathetic. He thought. All right, let's see what we can do to make sure that you get back on track. So I went back. I ended up going back to work eventually under a reduced schedule and and all of that. Hi, I'm Al Cresta, continuing conversation with Dr. Ray Garendi about my own experiences with depression. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number four. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Dr. Ed Garendi and I got together last week to talk, as we promised to do many times in the past, but never got around to it, to actually talk together for you know the sake of uh, our listeners and discuss my experience with depression back in the 1980s. I was hospitalized twice and had a, a boatload of therapists, and we're trying to sort out uh, what helped and what didn't help not to put up any barriers for people reaching out and getting assistance. This is meant to be an exercise in discernment, uh, not denial. I'm going to focus on kind of the funny things, but uh, at the same time, I need to say that, you know, after six months of struggling with this, I'm glad I had somewhere to go because it reassured me that people get through this, even if I wasn't getting the kind of response I thought I would get from the therapy. I kept, I was able to say, I never was suicidal, um, but I was. They had to think you were. Well, let me tell you what happened once. I I ended up, I stopped uh, uh, taking medication at one point in 1982 and ended up, uh, it came right back on me after about two, three weeks. So I went. I went back to the went back to the hospital, um, and there was a the uh, went, during intake. There's a, a doctor in this case. This was an old uh, Christian Reformed missionary doctor. Nice guy. Uh, he remembered me from last the year before, and because uh, questions of ultimate meaning were important to me, death was important to me. I simply asked him during, you know, he's checking my heart, checking my lungs. It's just the, the <laughs> standard intake, physical you go through. I said to him, um, Doc, you know, you've been uh, working out in foreign missions. Uh, you, have you seen people die? You've been with people when they die? He said, yeah. I said, um, I'm just curious. Does anybody die a good death? And he said, yeah. Yeah, I think so. So that's all. That that was the extent of it. And I and to me that was one of the most important things I he heard. Had no there. idea that he had given you no. that life raft. So I go to my therapist, and I'll tell you a story about this too. So I go to the, the the guy who's formerly my therapist there, and I tell him that he asked me, you know, what's what's helping, and I told him about my conversation with this doctor, <clears throat> and guess what? 
they went ahead, put me on suicide watch, and they disciplined the doctor for talking to me. Right. Because they interpreted that (laughs) as he was giving you permission to die the good death. (laughs) It was... I wasn't giving signs See, of... I, if I was your therapist, I would have said, why did that mean so much to exactly. you? Exactly. What was then what he said? Yeah. Now, clearly, that was adding a little bit of weight to your faith view. It was. It's like, okay, people it, can actually still believe this as real. Yep. You, your experience is just a, a tangentially close to my own. When I was in the evangelical world, I was probably at my lowest point yeah. in Christianity because it was confusing. I didn't know what to believe. Yeah. There were so many different moral beliefs. And I thought, is this Christianity? Now, I didn't get to the level you did, yeah. but I was shook. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly enough, as you were describing this, your curse, the two episodes of significant life-based depression that you had, is now your blessing. And, and I'll tell yeah. you why. Because if you didn't think with the depth that you did which caused the depression, yep. you wouldn't be who you are now because you think with a depth about faith matters, about moral matters. Yeah. That helps a lot of people. So obviously God pulled you out of that 40-foot deep pool you were down at the bottom of. Mm-hmm. But look how you think now. You know, that yeah. that most people wouldn't have gone into that kind of depression that yeah. you went into because they didn't think about it that deeply. Right, right. And and that's actually what was – there are a number of – I saw a number of therapists over those two, three years, three years. And not a single one of them uh, took the faith to mention this. It, this was the presenting problem. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. This was, was blatant. And, and it, I – and I knew it was extreme. I knew that the effect on my, my body, my mind Did was extreme. Did you tell them? Of course I told them. And they just didn't buy it. They thought you were misinterpreting they, your own upheaval. They, they, went, they brought my parents in from Connecticut because they figured it had something to do with my relationship with my, my mother and father. So they came in from Connecticut, and, it, and it, it, there was nothing, you know, I'm glad they were trying to help, but it, that didn't connect either. Um, I go back to the second time, um, the second time I go in there, uh, the psychiatrist, there's a psychiatrist who kind of heads up the team that I'm assigned to. And so he brings the therapist from the first year that I was there. He brings him in. And uh, I liked the psychiatrist. He was actually more more down to earth than almost anybody else there. So he says... uh, well, I have Tom here, and you know he was your therapist last time. And he said, uh, "So, how did how was your experience with with Tom?" And I said, "Well, to be honest with you, I'm back. <laughs> I, I'm back. I, you know, I, I would like, I think maybe we should get a different, you know, different therapist." No, no, you've already got uh, experience with Tom. You got so, a history there. Yeah, so we're going to leave you with Tom. You know, it's just. The, the the patient himself. You couldn't direct it, Al. That's right. <laughs> they had already they already had the notions of what was causing your depression. Yeah. When I was studying for my doctoral candidacy exams, one of the um, themes was you really don't bring religion into therapy. Yeah. You just don't. Yeah. Okay. You keep it totally neutral. Well, obviously, in keeping it neutral, you're prejudiced. Yeah. So that's one thing. I'm, they were probably operating out of that philosophy. Yeah. 
But the other thing is even a little more insidious, which is, well, your religion is the cause of your depression. Yeah. Well, that it came. It came. There were those who suggested that I had an unhealthy um, preoccupation with questions of faith. You know, uh, not not everybody had that, but nobody took. Only one. Uh, this older psychiatrist, who I I really didn't see very often. Uh, she's the one who said, "Look, this is who you are. You're not gonna you're not gonna come back." <clears throat> Uh, in fact, she said, you're not going to ever go back to who you were. You're going to come through this, but you're not going to come through it if you don't handle these questions. Did she mean this is who you are in that, okay, this is your pathological self? and no. they're Okay, she didn't mean it that no. way. She respected the fact yeah, that you were that, wrestling with honest questions. She was actually a Catholic who I didn't spend a lot of time with, but fr- she was the one who was just most um, astute in sensing what I was dealing with. And, um, you know, uh, uh, like I said, there were, I don't want to give the impression that this was, look, I'm still here, right? So it was glad, I was, it was good that I had people to reach out to. But uh, I went through deliverance ministries I, these were hilarious. I mean, there were some very funny things. How, how much of it was happened. the feeling that you're being oppressed by the devil? Well, they're you know I'm part of that circle of Christians who believe that kind of thing, and and consequently, and this was prescribed. You have to go to this deliverance ministry, and I, I we had one one night we went. They had a visiting uh, preacher who was there. Uh, his name was Mike something or other. He had a real good voice too. He sang. Um, and so everybody goes forward to have hands laid on you and, you know, people being slain in the spirit and all this. And, you know, I'm up there and I'm, and believe me, Sal and I were praying. So I went up and, um, nothing, you know, nothing big happened. I stepped back and they thought that I was falling back. So they came jumping off the stage <laughs> <laughs> kind of almost. Oh, we got a lawsuit on, on our hands on this right, one, <laughs> right? I wasn't. I was stepping back, but it was it was just amusing. Um, how How'd you t- pull out of yeah. it? Well, see, I don't think it was the therapy that helped you pull out. No, of it. it wasn't, and that's that was what was disappointing. The therapy was there as a, a life preserver, you know, something to reach out to, but it didn't have a. The talk therapy did not have a very positive effect on me. Um, I. I, uh, in May of, um, I'd gotten to the point in May of 1985 where I had been waiting for the Lord to do something, and he, he wasn't. He, he wasn't removing this. Um, and I realized I can't go forward on this. You know, you, you have to, you're either going to be a believer or you're not. And you, you, this idea of not kind of being in limbo, so you're going to have to make a decision uh, to either reject the faith entirely, or, I mean, in fact, if God doesn't do something, you're going to have to reject the faith entirely, because there, I had no structure for it anymore inside. A friend of mine came by, Algis Augustinidis is his name. Algis dropped by out of the blue. Uh, I don't think he ever visited us in this apartment before. And he said um, to me, he said, listen, have you ever thought of going you know, on retreat? I said, oh, no, I don't want to go on retreat. I don't want any God talk. You know, that only increases panic. 
He said, well, no, no, I'm talking about going on this retreat down at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Bardstown, Kentucky. It's where Thomas Merton was. And I said, yeah, but I don't want a bunch of monks talking to me about faith. He said, oh, don't worry, they're Trappists, they don't talk. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yeah. So it was one of those situations where I said to the Lord, I said, this, I'll, I'll do this, and this is, good. This is it. Um, this, is, this is my last hurrah. Yeah. So I went down there, um, and during the course of time I was there, I had um, three dreams that uh, I'll just I'll tell you uh, uh, one of them, uh, two of them. One of them was that I was drowning, um, and uh, and I was you know flailing around asking for help, and a little uh, rowboat pulls up beside me and the guy in the robot says hey relax i can get you out of there relax and i said okay and he reaches out but i'm just flailing i'm not going to relax eventually this goes on and he takes the oar and whacks me beside the head mm. and i go out Tell you what you know and he, <laughs> freudian analyst would have a lot of fun with that whole scenario and um, the other one was actually on the hospital on a operating room table the other dream and I'm telling the doctor, just cut in, doc. Don't worry about it. Don't need any. Don't need any <laughs> anesthetic. I mean, talk about being close. Oh, you are. That's manly. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, that's exactly it. And uh, so the doc scalpel touches my skin, and I go, whoa, wait, wait. He tries it again. I, I says no. He throw the mask on. Put me out, and they can operate. But in both cases, in both cases, I had to basically be out of commission for any healing or rescue that was going to happen. I'll continue the story on the other side of the break. We'll talk about healing and what rescue looked like after the break. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon. Countdown. Number four. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Doing something a little unusual this hour, Dr. Ray Garendi and I got together last week to talk about my experiences with depression. Back in the 1981, 82, 83, 84, I was hospitalized twice, and we left the conversation at the close of the last segment with me uh, sharing some remarkable dreams I had when I was at the Abbey of Gethsemane in May of 1985. Uh, the experiences down there were transformative for me. I left the Abbey Gethsemane after four days of prayer, those dreams, and writing. Lost 40 pounds immediately over the next few weeks, uh, next few months. Got immediately back into prayer. And Jesus's, what did it, were those dreams, and for some reason or other, Jesus' words from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It had never, I don't know, you know, I've heard those words for years, but all of a sudden it dawned on me, if the Son of God had a moment where he appeared to be abandoned by God, if the Son of God himself, at some level, could cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's part of the Christian story after all. The divine abandonment, the the where is God when it hurts, uh, this absence, the apparent absence of God, that's part of the Christian story. And that, that reawakened my faith. 
that the experience I had gone through was not alien to the Christian narrative, the Christian story. It it had a place in it. It was your own dark night of the soul. Yeah. Um, a few months after that, I went on a personal retreat uh, to a friend's house, and I realized I couldn't be managing the bookstores any longer. It was shaping me in ways I didn't think the Lord wanted me to go. Nothing immoral or unethical. Just the kind of pressures were shaping me into a kind of person I didn't think was best for me. So I, I said to the Lord, I said, um, listen, I'll go through this Christmas season. I'm not going to abandon the stores before Christmas. But if nothing happens, I'm just going to re- resign and start looking for other work. That was in July. In October, I got a call from a friend who um, was resigning his pastorate. Uh, he was an old, Joe Shannon, an old friend of mine, um, former Catholic too. And Joe said, you know, I'm going to be resigning here. Do you know anybody who would want a candidate to pastor for this church? I said, no, not really. And called a second time. I said, I haven't thought of anybody, Joe. Third time he calls, he said, look, why not you? So <laughs> he met the first two calls. Yeah. A little dense. Why, why not you? I said, me? He said, yeah, you've taught here before. People like you, you know. And I did like the group. I did have a, a, a real fraternal relationship with that this community. didn't bring back any any uh ill at easiness that's don't, don't wait a minute wait a minute don't you know my history i mean it's none of that that, no. was, that was past no that was past okay. i i that was the baptism of suffering and i, I and it, as it turns out without that i don't think i could have done the work of pastoring it broke down a lot of previous arrogance i'll tell you how arrogant i was before this happened i had an administrative assistant this is a year before i went into depression uh, an administrative assistant who's were quite good, a little clingy, a little needy, but but good, energetic. I came into the office one day. She wasn't herself. Her head was on the desk. And I figured, oh, you must be going through something. Take the day off, you know, um, and we'll, we'll start talking tomorrow. But I thought maybe it was attention-seeking behavior. I come into the office the next morning. She's on the floor of my office. So I step over her body. Go to my desk. Very sensitive. Yeah, this is, I'm telling you, this is the kind of <laughs> jackass I was. Step over a body, go to my desk, sit down, and I say, um, call her name. And then, uh, if you want to get up and talk, we can talk. And she gets up, she looks terrible. She talks about depression. Again, I thought this is attention-seeking behavior. I send her home. That night, there's an attempted suicide. She's taken to the hospital. My staff says, you know, she would like to see you, visit her in the hospital. We didn't have any affair or anything like that. Mm. Um, I said, no, I'm not going to go to the hospital. I'm not going to reward that attention-seeking behavior. So you can see that's not a pastor's heart. And this was all about a year before a year before I out. Yeah, yeah. So I, the baptism of suffering, I believe, was a special work of the Holy Spirit that prepared me. Uh, I went and candidated at that church. Uh, they had you had to get a sixty percent vote, and I said, "No way! I'm not going to come to a church in which forty percent of the people didn't want me." I said, "It's got to be at least eighty <laughs> percent." So they took the vote; it was ninety-five percent or so, and I started there in February. Went through the Christmas season with the store, started with the church. Shortly after that, I got offered to start working, doing some radio work. The elders of the church thought it was a good idea, and so I, for me, that terrible period of suffering. And then the renewal that took place at the Abbey Gethsemane, I think, prepared me for the work I ended up doing, both pastoral work and then my work on air. 
It's interesting because there there is a certain template that many clinicians approach depression with, mm. which is I already know what it is that you're dealing with, so I'm not going to really hear from you what you right. think it is right. you're dealing with because by definition you don't know. You're depressed. So you really don't know what's going on and I right. gotta find out what it is. Now I've had many people come to my office who have said my previous therapist didn't necessarily belittle their religion, but dismissed it. Yeah. Yeah, that happens. Yeah, that happens. And and I came across that as well. Thankfully, I dealt with a lot of Christians along the way, but they were not very – their faith wasn't that well integrated into their into their practice because, as you say, you know, the, there was hostility within the, the uh, psychological community towards uh, faith. And uh, so they, they didn't get any good training in it. Um, among – in evangelical circles – the uh, Christian Association for Psychological Studies, I think, had just been birthed like five years before or something. So that wasn't... We were not even much. to ask yeah, about faith. Yeah, that bad, huh? And I remember thinking, I, I was 23, 24 years old as a grad student thinking, wait a minute, this is at the center of many people's existence, and we're supposed to act as though it's either not there or it's part of their neurosis. yes. That to right. be a truly functioning, authentic human being, they've got to shed this stuff. Yeah, that's I came across that. Yeah, Ooh, yeah. remnants from Freud. Yeah, truly, because that's what he thought. Yeah, it yeah, was just remnants from right. Freud. It's an unhealthy preoccupation with faith is the word that was used. So, unhealthy preoccupation. Yeah. Well, it's it was working against me. I I could admit that you know that th- this was hurting. Uh, my quote preoccupation with it, but my my word, you're talking about life. You are talking about eternity. You're talking about life and death. You're talking about guilt and forgiveness. You're talking about reality. You're talking about ultimate reality here. And if that doesn't bother you, I don't know what else is going to bother you. But when you see the universe without God, and you see just a cruel joke, the, it's just it a cruel joke. Why did it give us consciousness? Just to take it away. Yeah. All your aspirations for love, significant moral judgments, thrown away. I finally concluded later on, I finally found language for it, um, that human beings, just by nature, are meaning-seeking creatures. That's what we want. We want to find meaning. And then secondly, we we can't escape moral judgments. We're always going to do moral judgments. Your, Your final prescription for me. (laughs) <laughs> you got to know how you think. You have to yeah. you have to look at at kind of a never-ending quest. How am I looking at life? How am I looking at people? How am I looking at myself? We get caught up in the circumstances. Bad things happen, I'm sad. Good things happen, I'm happy. But there is a much deeper layer to this. Yeah. Your layer was my whole world is falling apart right. because everything that I've based my existence on is rattled, badly rattled. Yeah. Kind of like a, I guess I hate to use the cliche, existential yeah. conflict. Yeah. But that's, it was, it, it was, and I, I, I agree with you about the use of language like that, but it, that, is, I, that is the right word. Yeah. 
So, so it was it was fascinating because I'm sure that they decided yours was a biochemically based depression that you were going through, and the fact that you returned six months later just proves it. Yeah, because those yeah. things tend to wax and wane, and here you go, but, you have another bout of depression. But this is what I always said. I said, look, there may be a biochemical component to it because I had a, a mild therapeutic effect from this medication, but it didn't fix anything. It didn't change your thinking. No, no. It, like I said, it got my nose out of the water so I could breathe a little bit again, but it did not solve the problem. The problem continued on until the Abbey Gethsemane. And I would maybe even dispute the word you used. You said mild therapeutic effect. It had a mild effect. Yeah, yeah. I'm not so sure it was therapeutic. The drug made you feel differently. Mm-hmm. So you interpreted that as, well, okay, maybe it's having an effect on yeah. getting better. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't dispute that. I mean, uh, I thought it was, kind of, it was a crapshoot. You know, they prescribed one thing. At that time, maybe better, I hope there's better, they're better at it now. But back then, I think I tried three or four different things. Toffernil was one. Those were all the, uh, the tricyclics yeah. at that time. They have, they have, and those came with some pretty heavy side effects. Yes. I mean, they did. They were yeah. what they call anticholinergic drugs, which really sort of affected the cholinergic system, which was your gut yeah. and all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, thanks. Hey, I was, I was, we've talked about getting together and talking about this. We've been talking about this for probably a few years Mm -hmm. to do. I'm glad we got a chance to do it. I I used to work in a state mental hospital. So, you know, we, I do a lot of intakes on that. And I worked, I worked at, uh, at nursing homes. So you, you get to see the kinds of presenting problems that people have. Man, you got to be sensitive to who they are. You can't just sit there and go, you're neurotic. And that's your problem. Now, they may be neurotic, but you've right. got to understand. I've, some, I've had some people in my office in terrible distress because of their religion. They just don't know how to understand it. They don't know how to interpret it. They are scrupulous out the wazuzi. Yeah. yeah. And it, for them, it is anything but a source of peace. Right, right. And I usually say to them, so you don't take Jesus as his word. Because obviously he said, I want to give you peace mm-hmm. that the world doesn't understand. And you don't understand. Well, that's, that's a, you have to be delicate when you say that because yeah. they're already struggling with religion. Yeah, yeah. No, I, that's right. And there are distorting forms of religion. I, I've seen it too with people. Um, yeah, I, I was, my, my take on this is always uh, it was a very mixed bag up there. Um, there were funny things that happened. Um, I did not get uh, my, the best insight I had uh, was from that doctor and there was a chaplain who came by it was from Calvin uh, Calvin College Calvin Seminary and he actually had a few things that were helpful um, but he, I didn't see him on a regular basis I ran across him in the hall so it was a funny it, again a funny uh, environment I never wanted to deter people from reaching out for help that's what I'm saying here is not, you know, keep keep it to yourself. Reach out for help. Get help. But um, remember, uh, ultimately, there is only one Savior here. And uh, you can get lots of help, lots of different people. But uh, for me, uh, it took a work of God to get me back stable and oriented for my future. My experience as a clinician is... 
that nothing can so alter a person as a genuine religious conversion. I have not seen therapy do it. Um, in many respects, even life circumstances. Yeah. The, the, the true turnabout for people's personality, adjustment, well-being, peace has been a genuine Christian conversion. Yeah, yeah. Ray, thanks. Thank you, Al. Great talking with you.